Hello, my name is Justin DeClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club Shocktober Edition. Justin almost forgot what the name of the podcast was. <laughs> I want he's, to suck he's your more blood. podcast than man. He's like, is it Bay Street Video? Is it uh, Where am I? That <laughs> is the true horror of this October month. But listen, it's the fourth and final Shocktober episode for the year. <laughs> <laughs> and we always like to highlight. Do we always like to highlight? I Not really. No, we sometimes like to highlight a filmmaker that who you've probably never heard of. Mm-hmm. Somebody creating spooks and shivers and goblins and ghouls with his own two hands out of uh, paper mache and spit in a dream. And who lived his entire life with very, very little acclaim. So we are living in the golden age of physical media, despite what you might have heard. We've had so many of these like career retrospective box sets from filmmakers, both high from your Agnes Vardas and your Ingmar Bergman's to low, your Andy Milligan's, your Herschel Gordon Lewis's, your Ray Dennis Steckler's. But even the buff was stumped when a couple of months ago, Powerhouse Indicator in the UK put out a beautiful, gorgeous, complete extras packed career retrospective of Michael J. Murphy. And people went, who? Yeah. <laughs> Michael J. Murphy made over 25 films, maybe I'm lowballing the number, from 8mm to 16mm, all the way up to mini-DV. Mm-hmm. And he made them from, like, the mid-60s till the, like, 2010s. And, unfortunately, almost none of them got any distribution anywhere. We'll talk about some that did get released on VHS and became kind of, like cause celebre just because they were so unavailable. But in his lifetime, I... I don't know how he could continue to make movies like he did with with no, no claim, no, no, nobody cr- noticing, nobody just but he kept just churning onwards making these movies and they're not all horror movies either. And this box set is not just horror films. They you know, you get psychological dramas, you get a lot of fantasy films, you even get a post-apocalyptic film thrown in there. That being one of the few that got any kind of de- distribution, Death Run. So when I first heard about this filmmaker and the box set emphasizes his sort of micro budget handmade aesthetic, I thought that he was probably somebody along the lines of, and now I'm going to name someone equally obscure, David the Rock Nelson. Oh, you thought it was that low budget? I thought it was he was that kind of guy, mm-hmm. you know, a a eccentric with a camcorder. <laughs> we need to explain David the Rock Nelson okay, a little please. bit. David the Rock Nelson is a guy who makes two hour, two and a half hour epics of like David the Rock Nelson versus the werewolf. Yeah, yeah. The monster and the Frankenstein meet the Dracula and the wasp woman. And he'll often star in his movies and it'll often be him like holding the camera on himself being like, oh no, here comes the werewolf. And he lives in like what, Baltimore or Mm -hmm. something and he'll just be on a street in Baltimore with a Halloween mask on. So God love David the Rock Nelson. Yes. I kind of thought, and he's an odd fellow. Yes. An eccentric. (laughs) Let me just look at his Facebook page. Oh no! Oh, his politics? Yeah. Uh, not interested, thank not you. Not interested. I'm just interested in the devil ant and what will happen to it. So I kind of thought Michael J. Murphy would be would be like that. Instead, I was confronted with a filmmaker who, actually, there's quite a bit of technical skill in these mm-hmm. films. They are very low budget. I think amateurish is the wrong word. They're, they're amateurish in the sense that they are amateur productions. Yeah. The dictionary I've heard some people like calling it that. And I think maybe there's just a stigma to that. Like <laughs> they don't know what they're doing making these films. No, but it's like he, he hits his head, I think, only on the practicalities of the resources that mm-hmm. he has. And also just oftentimes he's very ambitious with very little resources. And so he hits that brick wall, but... 
he doesn't allow it to stop him and he continues to make his movies. Yeah, I mean, a movie like Torment, which I I think is like a beautifully photographed film full of, you know, creative directorial decisions. And then, you know, there's a movie like his very Albert Pune-like post-apocalyptic death run (laughs) yeah you know that's one where yeah you see guys in their you know mad max halloween costumes like duking it out on the side of like a hill in rural england somewhere and like i guess it looks a little yeah well like you compare it to an italian post-apocalyptic film and you're like oh boy it doesn't really live up to that and you're like yeah but Look, look what they're doing. You probably shot this for under a thousand pounds. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so I do really do feel like these Michael J. Murphy movies are a real pass fail test of like, if you look at this and you think that this is bad filmmaking mm-hmm. and a bad movie, like you fundamentally don't understand. <laughs> so <laughs> how can they understand though? Like what, what olive branch will you offer like a context to un- like watch Michael J. Murphy. Cause like I look at letterbox, I'm shocked by people who usually I trust their opinions. They're like two stars, two and a half. Is that just expectation versus reality? Like preparing yourself for something like this? Well, maybe I'm going to contradict myself in saying two points here, because one of them is I think that on their own terms, they harness the amateurism, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, and create a mood. They create a style. They create something very enveloping. Certain of these movies with their like wall to wall Casio keyboard soundtrack. You know, the the darkness, the disorienting editing, the disorienting acting, they do create a kind of dream state. There is an intent there, and there's also mm. a well-informed and directed intent of creating these stylistically. Like, yes. Because you want to compare them to someone like Andy Milligan, mm-hmm. who, like, that's just throwing everything at the screen, just anger, like, you barely capturing the people on, on screen with the news camera that he's using. And, like, Andy Milligan, I do think there was even, like, maybe a little bit of intent in his style. No, I think uh, so, too. You know, uh, to, for those who don't know, Andy Milligan is a kind of Ed Wood of New York. Mm figure but Andy Milligan truly didn't like sweat the technical stuff at all I think Michael J. Murphy does I think there's a lot of beauty and I I also think Michael J. Murphy is conscious of amateur aesthetics and harnessing them into a style and into a mood so something that people need to be aware going into these movies is the majority of them the actors speak in almost a Bressonian deadpan when they talk where they're like oh no what's going on Ah, there's a supernatural force. But that feels it's, like part of the intent. Look, Ringo, it's blue meanies. <laughs> That's the only accent <laughs> I can do. <laughs> But like you watch some of his horror films and that's how everybody kind of speaks. But it's not like you can feel him going, oh, can you tamp your performance down a little bit? Mm -hmm. Because I want to keep it at the level of everybody else. I also think that his movies are they have that quality that a lot of the best micro budget exploitation guys have a Ray Dennis Steckler, for example, where it's like, well, there are no rules. Mm -hmm. Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh have a bit of this. It's like this is this is our production and we'll actually do whatever we want in it. Yeah. So you get a movie like Torment which conforms to no genre expectations. Well, if you were going to sell it, you'd be like, oh, it's like an erotic thriller that come out in the 90s. We can talk about Torment. It's about a singer who is having some personal issues, maybe some identity, like what is my point in life? So she decides to go to an old English cabin out in the woods Mm -hmm. or isolated. You see a lot of these in Michael J. Murphy's filmography because that's where he lived around. Mm -hmm. And when a handyman comes and visits, they start a relationship. And, whoa, what's that title? Torment? What does that indicate? Where's that going to go? I don't want to spoil it for people, but I can just assure you it does not go where you think it does. And interesting 
interspersed throughout all this, there were kind of, you know, giallo elements mm-hmm. to it. And some rockin' original songs in the movie. Well, yeah, this is the thing. It is like half a musical mm-hmm. of her where she's this like cool, like almost Debbie Harry-ish new wave singer. Very Jim Steinman-esque songs that she sings. Yeah, just, just one after another. And all these songs, and as well as the kind of ferocity of the Debbie, Debbie Stevens performance in the middle of it, it has this pressure cooker atmosphere, as well as the the blunt graphicness of Michael J. Murphy's visual style. This is one of the ones I've seen where, you know, there, he's doing all sorts of things with light, like light reflecting off surfaces. Yeah, he's also using that, like, I don't remember exactly, like, like a filter to give everything streaks mm-hmm. on screen as well, almost giving it like a wavy dreamlike feel. And, you know, the dreamlike quality, I think, is there in all his movies, but this one in particular, because all the, all the characters act like facsimile of characters that you see in other horror mm-hmm. movies or uh, uh, other movies like certain you know certain of those italian exploitation movies you were talking about have that lost in translation mid-atlantic dreamlike quality of oh this is what italians think a suburban american family is like and uh, you know this obviously isn't mid-atlantic but it does have a bit of that like this is an amateur or an amateurish production where everybody's dressed like mm-hmm. like there's a great characters scene in movies where the pop star does a big concert in like a dining hall somewhere in the even lampshaded by having character go wait is this supposed to be your big comeback in this shit hole <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's all michael j murphy could afford so tell me a little bit about michael j murphy because i i struggled to find information on him here's the thing about michael j murphy and i think it's something that's keeping people back from really getting into his work is that I wish there was more context around him that like if you watch the powerhouse indicator box set, there's some documentaries that are spread throughout all the discs. An interview with him as well that's yeah. on there from before his death where he comes across as a surprisingly normal seeming man. Am I wrong to? to no, absolutely yeah. grounded. I think that you would have to be that way to be able to continue to get friends and family or strangers to appear in your movies for basically no pay. Mm-hmm. And that like there's even the, the very thick booklet kind of gives some background into him that he was just a a movie passionate kid that like he made some films when he was a teenager that like he would play and that everybody in town would come and visit even the mayor and he would charge you know attendance to come and see and eventually he got to the point where he got an internship he worked on like a british film he was production. in elstree studios i believe yeah. and he was 16 years old uh, i believe his headmaster helped him get that and he was on the set supposedly for 2001 a space odyssey saw stanley kubrick work but he didn't like it he didn't like the way that the system kind of didn't allow everybody to be hands-on in the production which is what he was used to probably wrong to be on a kubrick set if you want to see (laughs) hands-on like (laughs) collaborative and then it gets a little bit fuzzier because especially in the booklet when they're breaking things down it says yeah and then he made like a hundred movies back to back to back a lot of them he would go on greek vacations and bring his cast and crew and they would try to shoot it in like five days the booklet documents movies that got started that didn't get finished that got tried to get started again that didn't get finished something interesting about his career and his filmography is that he would return and remake the same movie again and again because if no one's seen the first one like why wouldn't he if he feels that there's something there for example he made a kind of like a psychological thriller called secrets in 1977 that they shot in greece but then later on he made basically the same movie called quailin in 1983 with all the genders flipped and a more of a supernatural slant on it and he, that was one of the few films that got released the hereafter or he also loved the story of tristan and isild which he 
he remade three times wow. throughout his career over and over again because again like no one's seen these first two versions I'm not going to release them, so let me make the ultimate version I'm going to put out in the world. And it's kind of fascinating to look at someone who's basically a Jess Franco-like figure who needs to keep making movies, just revisit the same material again and again and again. So only a few of his movies got any kind of wide distribution. I assume Bloodstream was one of them? No. So Bloodstream was a movie that he made in reaction to what he considered a bungled release where he didn't get paid of his films Invitation to Hell and last night now you watch invitation to hell right yes i did and that that's a fun one i loved invitation to hell so invitation to hell is 44 minutes long it's a very simple story one of the great actually one of his real qualities as a filmmaker is he's a very economical storyteller and Mm -hmm. really gets into it without i think sacrificing the characters i i like as a screenwriter i'm always surprised watching his movies in that like where another filmmaker would you know, end the movie with the punchline that you expect when you read the premise of, oh, a woman goes to a party and maybe there's something weird at the party. Michael J. Murphy was in five minutes is like, oh yeah, they're devil worshippers. They're going to sacrifice her. Where and, does it go from there? And she's been kidnapped. Yeah. And Invitation to Hell is as much about the mood as anything. I think the story is strong. It's like it's strong enough mm-hmm. for what it is. There's something about his use of these amateur actors, I think, that creates... it's very few filmmakers who were able to do this sort of create an instant audience identification with an actor through the fact that they seem real and natural. Mm -hmm. That's what this movie invitation to hell has. But a lot of this movie, a lot of them, a lot of the mood of all of his movies is through this droning synth soundtrack. It's interesting because like all his movies have this, but he doesn't have that one composer working on all of them. So I'm like, or maybe he did and like he isn't credited on all the films according to IMDb, but that droning sense that goes through all of these films is like the backbone of them and really creates that uneasy feel to the entire experience. And so as that's going on through these scenes and in invitation to hell, just kind of in and around the grounds of this like satanic devil worshippers cult as nightfall envelops the movie, it kind of feels like you're you're underwater or something. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, you're not underwater. You're in the woods alone at night. But there's this otherworldly quality to it that you enter. The film that this one was included with on VHS, The Last Night. Is Which a... I also watched. Oh, you did watch yeah, it? I yeah. thought that one was great, too. Oh, and I loved it. It was like a completely different side to Invitation to Hell. Yeah, you know, a backstage-like giallo. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Where on the last night of a play, which is a murder mystery, two psychos, never explain, they just show up, start murdering the cast members. And then when they find out the go but you guys got to continue on with the play and if i don't like your acting i'm gonna kill you it's different in a lot of ways from invitation to hell but i do think some of the effect is the same Mm. i I don't know whether it was intentional or not but you get so disoriented in the in the in this theater in the backstage but it's like what's real what's not the lines between on stage and off stage aren't always i think michael j murphy is in complete control of that because you'll get a murder and then it'll cut to the stage which is a very similar murder happening at the same time which is like what is entertainment are you entertained by this play and then are you entertained what's happening backstage which in the context of this movie is real like he's doing a lot of interesting stuff there i mean if i saw this on vhs i'd be like wow what is this these two movies like that are distinct enough from each other and it's just 90 minutes we didn't say that invitation to hell and the last night are only 45 minutes each 
And that's why they were released together. So he was betrayed by this experience. He didn't get the, I'm sure, voluminous royalties that he was owed. For <laughs> or him. any royalties, I think. Right. And so he responded with his own personal last house on Dead End Street, mm-hmm. Bloodstream. Now, Bloodstream, just to give some context about, it is probably his most well-known film, mostly because it was unavailable. The story goes that he gave a rough cut to an actor who then leaked it to someone else and then it distributed from there, much to Michael J. Murphy's chagrin. Mm. He did not like it being out in the world. Why did this one, though, get that outsized reputation? Is it because the premise is so good? Yeah, and I think maybe it's unavailability and it's like, oh, wow, like, I can't believe, like, what is this movie? And you don't know, if you didn't know who made it, you'd be like, this is a movie about a filmmaker who gets betrayed by his distributor and he decides to retaliate by killing the distributor and his family, filming them to make the ultimate horror movie. And this is all in between just horrific violence watched by the filmmaker of like hunchbacks, werewolves, witches, which watching it the first time I went, Oh, is this short films that Michael J. Murphy had? And he just showed it to pad it out. Nope. They shot this all originally for this movie. And like the last night, there is a constant disorienting quality of not being sure what's, what's the movie within the movie and what's the Mm. movie itself. I mean, I think one of the reasons why this movie probably has a slightly outsized reputation compared to the other ones is it is a reaction to and was in the middle of the video nasty era in Britain. If uh, non-British listeners don't know, there was this whole wave in the UK, you know, conservative politicians fighting this fight against so-called video nasties, movies like Cannibal Holocaust Mm -hmm. or Faces of Death, you know, just gory movies that they said, you know, our kids are renting these at the video store and they're they're destroying they're destroying the youth well, of the of britain people got arrested and went to jail just for renting those types of movies out right and now i think pretty much almost all of them are available yeah and a lot of them you see them and you're like oh bad <laughs> terrible i mean this was not a video nasty because it never got released no ever no but i mean it it came out it was made in the middle of it and it almost feels like a ghost of that era yeah. Uh, or like a primal scream of that era, basically. Well, the fact that like this this like snuff filmmaker who's at the center of it is killing people and, and filming their murders. I mean, that was one of the popular like urban legends of the time, right? That like, oh, there's like snuff movies out there being rented out. Like, have you heard about this? They they filmed this movie in South America where life is cheap. Yeah, I think it's called snuff. <laughs> My God, they're even saying it in the title that it's snuff. It has to be real. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so obvious. It has to be true. The ultimate con. And so in the movie, the constant dissolution between what's real, what's in the movie, what's real and being filmed and put into a movie, I think probably probably resonated just the premise of the movie resonated with you know some parts of the british dreamscape yeah i mean and this is a movie that it's interesting that michael j murphy said he doesn't want it released almost as if it was too much of a primal scream in his opinion like oh i feel like i put myself too far out there in the version that's on the blu-ray the actor playing the filmmaker is dubbed by michael j murphy and on the blu-ray you can watch both versions the version that was released and then a new scan of the elements that make the director's cut i watched the original version yeah me too yeah the whole movie you watch it and wonder like what is michael j murphy trying to say in this because it almost feels like oh do horror movies lead to these violent acts not really because the guy who's watching it is going eh, this is stupid i don't like this stuff but then you know that michael j murphy who shot all this stuff of like a hunchback torturing a woman that's tied up 
He loves making this kind of stuff. This is kind of a subgenre of horror movies. The, you know, like Lucio Fulci's Cat in the Brain and Cronenberg's Videodrome are also examples of like these oft censored filmmakers making making movies where it's like, well, hey, what if our art actually did like mm. fundamentally alter the way that we are and that you are for watching them? And I don't think there's anything like didactic or prescriptive about them. No. I think it's just like it's just an interesting like idea to wade in in a horror movie because there is joy in all the sequences that he shoots. And when I watch these, I I, I read somewhere that like, Oh, he shot it for 500 pounds. And I'm like, no way. There's too many makeup effects in this or like glasses being broken that if he did man props to him, because as a filmmaker myself, I watch how much he's putting on screen. And I'm like, I can't even fathom doing something that then somebody else watches like, look how cheap this is. Okay. This is again, why I think these movies are a very simple pass fail test because you look at death run which mm. is his post-apocalyptic mad max type movie and which i loved yeah there are like mutant beasts in that movie and you can watch it and go look at that that looks fake okay but the, yeah the mutant beasts who are kind of dressed like you know the the sand people in star wars mm. or something and they've got these like paper mache or whatever it is like globules all over their face and and they've got this like puffing like balloon wound that keeps puffing in and out and i look at that i think that's so cool yeah that's so creative that he got this thing to puff in and out as opposed to looking at it and going like oh well i don't buy it yeah like is your standard realism or is your standard is this cool yes (laughs) and i I would argue though death run not much happens in it no well i mean enough happens enough happens in it i mean there is also value to be put into a post-apocalyptic film where everybody's like, hello, I'm British. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like, ah, love yeah. it. I, I think, again, the, the plots of these movies are functional. Mm. They they work, but they're very much about like being in the mood, the, the very peculiar synth Casio mm. keyboard mood they evoke. Like I also watch Atlantis, his big kind of sword in the sorcerer, if it was shot in the back room of a working psychiatric <laughs> hospital. And that movie is bonkers, even though I do think he's a little bit overwhelmed by all the stuff he has, where I'm like, I don't even know who I'm supposed to follow in this movie anymore. <laughs> There's so many things, but that just shows that as a filmmaker, he, I, I don't know how he could find the strengths to keep doing these mega productions to just like silence from any distributor or, or anybody out there i guess art for art's sake you know he yeah just, like he, he just he had, doing it he just needs to keep doing it and i mean there's a hint in the booklet that he actually went bankrupt making these movies so like i just need to keep pumping these out and if nobody sees them well oh well i mean it's so sad that he passed away before like a big box set like this could come out you were saying that you felt that there's a bit of a disservice in the box set possibly like it's overwhelming people see yeah. the box set and they don't know where to start i i do think that's the case and that's not Like, I don't know how you would have approached this if you want to do it from this box set way to get people in. Like, this is a beautiful box set that is, like, so well designed. I'm so glad I have it. Yeah. And And I'm glad that there are, like, endless movies in this box set. But I think (laughs) that's what people bounce off of, is that because of its low-budget nature, not knowing where to start, not having enough context for it, they often watch one or two and then go, eh this wasn't really for me when like it's like no but you got to watch more to see the entirety of it i mean if i was going to recommend people start watch invitation to hell watch the last night watch bloodstream Mm -hmm. and because those are all thematically linked because those two lead into the third one 
or or start with Torment? I don't know. Yeah, I mean Torment is probably the slick one of the slickest ones I watch on the box. Torment set. was my favorite one that I watched. Yeah, I, it's definitely my favorite too. It just has a very strange. I've never seen a movie with a tone like mm. Torment. I really liked. It was released in America as the Hereafter, and I can never remember it the actual title because it's a word I don't recognize. The kind of word that it you get the definition within the first frame of the film, Quailin, which is like a diabolique style, like a guy maybe murders his father so he gets the money in the house but then his father's will says you only get the money if you live in the house and then he is haunted by maybe the ghost of his father and let me just say that 30 minutes in there's a big twist that completely recontextualizes the whole movie and then it goes in really fascinating ways like that's another really good one on this box set but again I'm coming from the perspective like Will is that like we haven't seen all of these either like maybe there's another big winner that like oh well you had to watch this one but yeah if I were just selling him to people if I were selling this box set to people it's just like kind of unbridled imagination and creativity and and risk taking mm-hmm. like artistic risk taking these movies go in they they go in any direction uh, some of them are truly unpredictable like torment with a tone that is unlike anything i've seen in one of these micro budget horror movies absolutely agree <laughs> that when you watch these and just like the way they're shot edited performed scored no other movie will be like Michael J. Murphy's films. Yeah, they're they're hypnotic and they're a little bit funny. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes hard to tell how funny they're supposed to be. Yeah, I think that like they're even a rung l- way lower than like Moturn films that yeah. you're like, oh, I get it. Like this is a comedy. Like Michael J. Murphy, maybe three, four movies in, you go, oh, he's in on the joke. Yeah. But there's also incredible, I think, formal beauty in these yeah, movies. Yeah, I absolutely agree uh, as well. On their dollar store level, yeah. So, like, get this box set, because this came out, I think people were excited about it, and I feel like most people bounced off of it, because mm-hmm. they were like, I don't know, maybe it's just not for me. And it's like, no, no, mm-hmm. just look into this, discover it, watch it. Michael J. Murphy deserves to be on that same level of people like and Ed Wood. Ed Wood or like Andy Milligan, Ray Dennis Steckler. Like you put them all kind of in the same box, mm-hmm. but even though they're working all on different tonal and stylistic levels. Mm-hmm. So do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. The first letter goes six degrees of the important cinema club. It's from NP. He goes, Hey, Justin and Will. I've been meaning to write in after absorbing myself in your podcast over the last few months, and I was musing on the tangled and gradual way which I found myself in the world of little scene cinema in which you seem to live. I've been a fan of Red Letter Media for six or seven years prior, becoming aware of no such thing as a bad movie podcast by looking for more of Calling from Canada's content. And I thought, who's this other guy? He's pretty loud. But I came to love listening to the No Such Thing pod as well. For the record, I'm very loud on these podcasts. I can be very loud when I'm in group. I feel like I'm not that loud. I feel like per- you're a little more mellow on this episode, though. Yes. Think? <laughs> the letter continues. Oh, what's this important cinema club podcast you keep talking about? If it's important, I better check it out. Oh, this Will guy is a very distinctive voice as well. And he keeps talking about... Can you guess, Will? He's going to say porn. Hardcore pornography. What can I say? I guess this is my fate. What a character. After finding the important cinema club, I've also started listening to the Bay Street Video podcast as a collector of physical media. What's next? Can I make the leap to Michael and us? Is it too much politics? Not enough movie? I'm not sure yet. I mean, it might be, but hey, come on in. The water's warm. Hey, you like comic books? The very fine comic book podcast is waiting for you. You could spend your whole life listening to podcasts that we've done. (laughs) I'm also a listener of Tarantino's Video Archive podcast, which I think is 
also good at spotlighting Forgotten Film and a longtime listener of Sardonicast, which I believe April and Colin are guesting on very soon. Just to say, Six Degrees, yeah, you've fallen into my trap, listener. <laughs> that, that was all the intent. Now you're paying Justin's rent. How do you like that? <laughs> Nowadays, wait, he could not be a Patreon subscriber, in which case, we don't got him yet. No. Nowadays, I find myself very pleased when I see a new episode pop up of the Important Cinema Club when you are talking about world cinema or films with 25 logs on Letterboxd, <laughs> rather than films that have been canonized, and I credit you, Justin and Will, as keeping me curious and hungry for that sense of discovery. So thank you. I know you have spoken at length about what it means to enjoy a bad movie and how a bad movie should be enjoyed, referencing annoying theater goers and the new bad movie douche bro crowd. Is this the fault of red letter media or God forbid cinema sins? Is cinema sins still around? I think, well, I actually don't know if they're still around. Yeah. Those the, everything wrong with, I know, Spider-Man in 25 minutes videos. I don't know. Where it's like a guy shooting web out of his hands. That wouldn't happen. <laughs> but I think that these more mainstream channels gave me a direct line to the world of low budget and forgotten cinema, which I don't know if I would have found otherwise. So for better or for worse, here I am ready to follow the important cinema club into the abyss. Well, yeah. I mean, I always said that about mystery science theater. You know what? I absolutely agree with what Will said is that like listen does it create people who feel better than the movies that they're watching yes does it also make people very curious about the films create kind of an attachment there and they want to know more clearly the letter writer here proves it but you know the letter writer is referring to the phenomenon of going to to a repertory cinema and seeing a movie like oh i don't know showgirls or what what's a popular rep cinema movie that people might laugh at room i guess yeah stuff like that and and like or even or even just kind of like normal like have you seen i saw a twin peaks firewalk with me once at a rep theater and like i didn't see that screening i laughs i hear that happens all the time with firewalk with me and i mean listen i'm not going to be the last police but we justin and i just hosted a screening of a little canadian movie called things Mm -hmm. and man i wish i wish we could bottle that atmosphere and spread that in every theater everywhere because we had actual cast members from the movie there and there were laughs all through the movie and they were laughs of like love Mm -hmm. like you could you could feel the difference yeah you can feel the difference of like i love this movie this is so funny versus this is bad i'm laughing at it yeah there's a big difference between both of them have you ever watched any red letter media videos oh sure yeah what i like about red letter media is that they can be very like good in their analysis and also they seem cursed with the life that they have like every one of the videos are like I got to review this. eh? I mean, I think those guys are really smart. Mm, I agree. Uh, Like, you know, the half in the bag videos Mm -hmm. or the the ones like that Colin is in about about uh, best of the worst. Yeah, because they do stuff that they like and then they talk about at length for like 90 minutes. Yeah, which I think is very different than Cinema Sins, Mm -hmm. which there's no movie love anywhere there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the way to go about it. Like there's movies you like, there's movies you don't. Now it's all about as a listener. I mean, if you're listening to this, We've already got you. That's you're listening right. to all this. If you listen to the Michael J. Murphy episode, you got nothing to prove. <laughs> like You're in. But it's about like, what is that bridge that they can create to discover more stuff? And I think sometimes that's tough to like give that challenge thing. Mm. It's interesting that like the Red Letter Media guys did make movies themselves. And they're like, this is too hard. We can't do it. Yeah. And they just went back to doing their Red Letter Media stuff. Even though I love the idea that like the first film, Feeding Frenzy, I think the guy said, I just want a 30 minute shower scene. And you're waiting for something to happen that never arise that's really fun i love that they didn't do it like samuel beckett yeah exactly have you out of curiosity ever seen the movie blood hook 
Yes. That's done by the Mystery Science Theater 3000 director, right? Yeah, the Jim Mallon, and I think Kevin Murphy's involved, too. Do you have any opinion? Is it any good? You've never seen it? No, I never have. It's two hours long. Okay, well, strike one. I think it's pretty fun. It's about, like, a serial killer who kills people with a hook. It's comedic without being full-on satirical, okay. to the point that when people watch it, they're like, is this supposed to be a comedy? It is. Mm -hmm. But, like, that's another example of, you know, it's tough to make movies and also critique them. So, yeah. like, I mean, the Red Letter Media guy just went, we're just not going to make movies. Like, it's too hard. Mm -hmm. But we can still speak about them eloquently. I'd say that of all the episodes we've done, we've probably done, like, maybe 10 or less where we just full-out disliked the thing. Yes. That's right. And we try not to. Sometimes we're like, yeah. listen, guys, we went in with best intentions, yeah. but we don't like it. Yeah. And that's tough because I don't it's not fun for me to talk about that kind of stuff. Well, exactly. Like, we're not going to do... We're not going to do an episode exploring an entire filmmaker's career. I mean, listen... That's what we have Michael and us yeah, for. If you want me to hear me talk about films that I don't like, there's a little podcast called No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. You can hear me on there and be like, ugh, so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, terrible. Not not so jolly anymore, is he? No. Yeah. <laughs> so you can hear me there. If you're tired of this enthusiastic Justin on this podcast, go to that one for sometimes a, oh boy, I can't believe we had to watch this movie podcast. You know, Unless it's really bad. In which case, I'm the one who's like, <laughs> yeah what's great about our other podcasts is we'll look at letterbox and we'll see each other log certain movies and, and we know like, it's for a podcast it's like well there's only one reason he watched master of disguise again <laughs> again there's only one reason he's it. watching the santa claus 2 for the fifth time <laughs> a movie that he's never liked deck the hall for the 10th time <laughs> well i love deck the halls though now that you is a, yeah that's a torturous experience <laughs> danny devito saved that film love it or the, the christmas with the cranks we gotta do that this christmas <laughs> Okay, what's our Christmas episode? Ooh. Bad Christmas movies? <laughs> well, that's so easy. Yeah, we can just do that, I guess. Because I've never seen Christmas with the Cranks. I know it. Yeah, yeah, you know it. Is there enough bad Christmas movies for us to do? Do people have Christmas movie suggestions? The one thing I know about Deck the Halls is that that was the movie that Danny DeVito showed up drunk on The View to promote. Yeah, oh, he was that clip is so funny. he was funny. talking about fucking his wife in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> Love it. Danny DeVito, a little sex machine. And he starts to like sit on the knees of one of the hosts. <laughs> and, and he starts spoiling the end of the movie. And they're like, Hey, 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 no, no, don't spoil <laughs> the movie. So don't spoil the movie. <laughs> he gave that movie as much respect as it deserved. Yeah. Wait, what were we talking about again? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Do we have any other letters? <laughs> well, thank you very much for that letter, NP. We do. We have one from Theodore, and it goes, Hello there, my favorite pair of Canadian cinema deities. Deities, we, whoa. Whoa. Don't know about that. First, I want to thank you both for so much for luring me into the carnival of Christian bazoinkness that is Ron Ormond. Ron Ormond. Oh, man. One and, of us. And Justin, specifically for making me go watch Hundreds of Beavers, the funniest film of the year. This is Justin speaking. At a local film festival screening, this film spiked my serotonin levels to 9,000. I wanted to ask you two about the always ongoing back and forth discussion regarding longer running times. Listen, we talked about this before. Love talking about it. <laughs> to make our opinion hurt. I feel like I'm, I don't have a fixed position on longer running times, mm. but what does Theodore have to this say? This year, we've had both Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon scratch that seemingly bladder-dreaded three-hour mark, and many out there, both film fanatics and popcorn-munching laymen, have spoken about them being too long and even before their actual release took place, which I find quite baffling. It seems that longer, mature prestige dramas have shifted mostly to TV, which perhaps is a contributor to the slappy, wavy hand pre-watch criticism, and even when Scorsese himself, who should be one of the very few directors to trust with epic lengths raises eyebrows for stretching out a story. I have to wonder when and for what film is a three hour plus runtime acceptable? This is a very easy to answer question when they're good. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. But I would say, yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon, A, wouldn't cut a second out of it. Nope. B, 
that runtime is very important. Like mm-hmm. the movie, you got to sit with it. It's doing something with duration there. You really have to sit in that movie and and let it get inside your skin. Like it hypnotizes you with its pace. And even Oppenheimer, I didn't feel the length that much when I was watching it. But you know, there are certain like the Flash. Ugh. You saw the Flash, right? Terror. I hated it. The whole midsection where it's <laughs> wait, the... did you see the Flash? Yeah, yeah I think let me I look did. at his Twitter to see. I know you're not yeah. tweeting about it now. But... Yeah, the whole midsection where it's just the two Ezra Millers doing shtick with each Ugh. other. Like, I'm sorry, 30 minutes of that movie felt longer than 80, 80 minutes. Made that movie 80 minutes yeah. long. Any any scene felt longer than Killers of the Flower Moon. And now here's the thing: Do I think every movie should be between 80 and 85 minutes? Yes. yes. Do I think that filmmakers should be allowed to make three-hour movies? Yes. Yeah. Like, that's what it comes out. And those seemingly contradictory positions are both ones that we can hold. I've tweeted about this, and people have angrily tweeted about, like, how dare you? And you're like, who do you, who do you think I'm saying is not allowed to make three-hour movies? Yeah. Like, Martin Scorsese? No, he can do it. Yeah. Even Christopher Nolan? Yeah, he can do it. Perfect writing time? 63 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Wait, let me see how long Bella Lugosi and Brooklyn Gorilla is. Yeah. Preferably with a Groucho, a Harpo, a Chico in the middle of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Hey, if the Three Stooges, you get a short at the beginning that's 15 minutes long? Heaven. Yeah. yeah great. <laughs> Wait, before I forget, did you hear that they announced that there's a theatrical Looney Tunes short coming, movie coming out? I was looking at that on my phone literally when you opened the door for me to come out. <laughs> that's why your mouth was agape and you're yeah. like, huh? Yeah. I can't believe it. I'm happy it's happening, even though it's a little weird it's a daffy porky doubleheader well you know our online friend branson reese had a letterboxd review of a chuck jones cartoon called to duck or not to duck where he wrote and i'm just quoting from him there's a real teacher assigning a project in may that you know won't be due before the grades go out energy when it's just daffy and elmer (laughs) daffy doesn't love elmer the way he loves porky and so he gets to be even crueler and you know there's something in that that i I feel like i kind of like those counterintuitive what are the high porky and daffy shorts though i'm trying to think of them. oh well there's the one where they go to oh so wait that was that was porky and sylvester yeah the haunted house one yeah daffy and porky Struggling. Man, if Francis listening to this right now, he's like, "You idiots!" Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, oh, at Porky's Duck Hunt, the, yes, the very, the first. very first one. Yeah. But that's what Porky is like torturing. Oh, or the, Daffy's. The, I, I know one, the Ducksters, which is like a radio. I'm pretty sure there's a... Wait, is that the one that's the... He's like a radio Dick host. Tracy? No, no, that's the great piggy bank. Yeah, Robert. yeah. The Ducksters is... Daffy is a sadistic radio host who's like hosting a game show and he keeps torturing Porky. I don't think I've seen that one, but well, I know that the hundreds of new Looney Tunes shorts that were made, there was a lot of Daffy and Porky ones. And now they're all lost media. Are they lost media? Well, Let I me don't t- know. Probably. You could probably find them somewhere. Somewhere, but it's like difficult and in Canada, I can't really find them anywhere. It's yeah. like, well, what are you guys doing? Tax reasons. Tax reasons. And this letter just wraps up with, do modern audiences only accept long run time for conclusive saga events like Endgame or more action-oriented epics? And if so, why? I think people don't balk at long run time, I guess, if they think that it's not going to be homework. I'm putting this in quotes. That's right. Where it's like, oh, it's Avengers Endgame. Yeah, bring on three hours and a half. People are fine binge watching 10 episodes of that, a TV show. That are bad or right. just okay. Yeah. So, but, they, but they know Killers of the Flower Moon will be... Not even challenging. They think it will be work. Yeah, and I think that's so funny that it's like, yeah, give me 20 hours of something that, you know, is not that good rather than three hours of something that's really good, but Mm -hmm. I need to confront something when watching it. Mm -hmm. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on a Patreon this week, Will? Well, speaking of Mr. Scorsese, we are talking about his new movie, some first impressions on Killers of the Flower Moon. 
a movie that, well, I won't tell you here if we liked it or not. You'll have to become a patron. <laughs> yep, that's right. Did we like it? Did we not? Our answer may surprise you. So next month, we're jumping into International Month. That's right. Four weeks, four different countries. We will be exploring auteurs from all of them. Now, last year when we did this, we picked countries that we had never discussed before. Mm. That won't necessarily be the case this year because the first director we want to talk about is... Y'all ready for this? Bum, 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 <laughs> King bum, bum. Who? King Who. <laughs> That's right. Taiwan's art house martial arts master. Yeah. We are going to be talking about Touch of Zen, of course. Mm -hmm. We'll be talking about, man, he's got so many movies. Yeah, Touch of Zen, Dragon Inn, you should definitely yeah, watch. Dragon Inn. Come Drink With Me. Yeah. Those are we, the hits. Yeah, the but hits. we should challenge ourselves too, because like there's some later period films. Well, I've got one. Yes. I've got one that's very obscure. What's that? I don't think it's available anywhere. Okay. And you're going to have to find out next week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I forget what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a very obscure one that you're definitely going to want to check in next week's episode to find out what what that is so king who next week and then after that uh, we're well, gonna explore the globe that's right <laughs> so until then my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening before we get to the rest of the episode i'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include mike opal cj fusco sean belding luke welling relaxock irene and Chris M. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We would not keep doing this without you. Well, Justin, you did your annual 24-hour horror movie mind melter on Twitch last weekend. Mm -hmm. 24 hours of horror movies. You know, before starting, I asked you, is there any other genre that a 24-hour movie marathon would work with? And I'm I'm not convinced there is. Mm -hmm. Like, what what do you what do you think? Well, yeah, Peter was asking me recently, like, could you do an action one? And I was like, hmm, it'd be difficult because you don't want the same movies, you know, butting heads against each other. A lot of time, people go like, oh, I love double bills. You should do these two movies as a double bill. And I think, yeah. But those movies are too similar. You wouldn't want to watch them back to back. That's right. You want things that are distinct or play off each other. And that's how I always try to program these bad boys in the sense of like, I expect someone to start right at the beginning and to watch it right until the end. And then you can have like a wacky, splattery Hong yep. Kong horror versus like moody J horror versus an American anthology film mm -hmm. versus so many different, so many different varieties. But the other challenge I give myself doing these things is... I understand people are watching these at home and because of that, you can be very easily distracted by anything else. If the movie loses your attention for a second that you're like, Oh, I'm bored. I'm gonna look at something else. And it's like, no, I've lost you. So like for this one, when I do 24 hour marathons online, if you're a programmer and you're doing a double bill, this is an airtight rule. I always tell people play the serious one first, even if you think like, Oh, but it's better. I want to play it second. Don't do that. Play the serious one first. What about the idea that the first one should pop to like to hook them? Only in more than two movies. Okay. And I've only learned this through programming for years at the home Laser Blast Film Society that I would find people's attention would drift after that first one. That when they're sitting down for that first movie, they're ready. They're about to watch it. But we're also not programmed really to watch more movies than one, like in a theater setting. So like your attention drifts after that. 
And so you want to hook them usually with something slow that will make them lean into the movie because you've got 100% of their attention. You don't need to get their attention to sit in the cinema because you've already got it. While online, absolutely different. You need to pop right off the beginning and be like, look at this crazy thing. And then after that, you know, I started with an anime movie that was only an hour long that had everything in it. And then after that, I, I gave them a French TV movie <laughs> that is not available anywhere else. That's like a Henry James adaptation that's super slow. What were some of the big crowd pleasers? Some of the big crowd pleasers included, I played a Shaw Brothers film called Hell Has No Boundary, which is a really fun possession film filled with murder and women eating like mag- real life maggots on screen. You love that kind of stuff. Oh, sure. A surprise one that popped was that I was running way under time and people were coming in being like, hey, the movie said it was supposed to start. And I was like, oh, so I need to pad out the time. And so I randomly played three Mickey Mouse horror based short back to back, starting with The Haunted House, 1929, followed by Lonesome Ghost, which is Mickey, Goofy and Donald are in a haunted house, which I found that Disney just posted online. You can download it in a new scan. It was part of their D23 celebration. And then, which I believe me and Will have talked about this one, 1995's Runaway Brain. I know it. Back to back to back. People very much enjoyed it. That was, I was shocked. People were like, this is amazing. I would have never watched it if he had not played it during this marathon. And then out of respect to the original programming, did you then show a kid in King Arthur's court? (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) It needs to follow what Runaway Brain was originally attached to. One that I knew was like, just an easy, like, you know, knee-length slam dunk was playing Chang Chase Heaven and Hell. Have you ever seen that one? I have not, no. Where it starts in heaven, and then it moves to Earth, but the Earth section is all shot like a dream ballet in, like, a Vincent Minnelli movie, mm-hmm. where it's, like, all abstract sets and just emptiness, and everyone, when they're fighting, there's actually no sound effects on their punches or kicks, so they're all kind of, like, dance fighting, mm-hmm. and then the characters die, and they go to hell, and it's just, like, all big, multicolored, Dario Argento hells. You get to see them all, and nothing but fighting for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. So people really had a blast with that one, which is one of those movies I'm always surprised that hasn't really gotten out there yet like no company's gone oh let's put heaven and hell out on blu-ray or dvd even though it did get an american dvd release back when i don't remember what company were just pumping them out like and eh, just take them just take these shaw brothers movies and then a, a big hit was and i'm gonna move past it really fast an edit of a four hour full motion video game that my friend did making it into a 90 minute movie well and it like it feels a little weird because it was never meant to be that way. But if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's just a weird 90s David Cronenberg-esque ripoff movie. So like a full motion video game for people who don't know is like one of those CD-ROM games that like had live action segments. Mm-hmm. But it was a CD-ROM, so they looked a little janky. Yeah, exactly. And he somehow was able to cut it down. And I think people were very surprised by that because you can go online right now and watch a four hour playthrough of the game. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same as watching like the 90 minute movie because he had to choose how scenes flow into each other. He went to go get the score and he put it over it. It's currently not available online. The guy who edited it was named Pierce Dirks. And hopefully somebody will maybe reach out to the publisher of it and uh, get his version out there because that would be great. Also, Jeff Leroy's Creepies. There's this guy named Jeff Leroy. Let me tell this to you. He's been making movies since the 90s and he loves miniatures and he shoots all these 
giant monster and he shoots him on film in slow motion because that's how you're supposed to shoot miniatures on ones that he, he builds. So creepy is this giant insect, specifically a spider. And then the other half of the movie is the shittiest looking mini DV, hyper violent non-actors doing their thing, <laughs> fighting like little, in this one, CGI spiders, but then it's all graphic, practical gore. People getting their faces ripped off, shotgun a blast to the head. People love this movie. And a lot of like, wow, I never knew this guy was out there. And I was like, yeah, he's directed like 20 movies. So go out and discover them. And then at 3 a.m., I loved playing a new film by Joe Meredith. He's like, hmm, I don't know how I would describe his films. They're kind of like weird snapshots, like gory snapshots shot on VHS of like this weird universe that he creates. And they're very unsettling. Like, for example, in this one, there's a woman who like gives birth to a monster that like rips open her head or a guy just like shits out a giant stop motion monster in the toilet. There's no real plot to these. I played variant the first time. That's how my son was born. (laughs) Hey, oh. And like people always find these very disquieting. I love playing them. And Joe Meredith is one of those guys. You want to watch his shorts? You got to buy them on DVD from him. There's no other ways to watch them. Wow. So check that out if you want it. And then Love Have you ever seen Love God? Not the Don Knotts vehicle. No, it's a, a film directed by one-time only filmmaker Frank Grow, 1997. I would call it like Frank Hellenlauter on speed. And it's one of the <laughs> lost Midnight Madness movies. It played oh, wow. at Midnight Madness in 97. And unfortunately, my pal Peter contacted the filmmaker because he wanted to play it on film again. The filmmaker said, we don't have any copies anymore. Oh. And it was a film, though, that they shot on mini DV and then transferred to film. And that's what they scan on the DVD. And it just there's no more prints left, unfortunately, oh. which is a real bummer. And then Ghoulies 3 as a surprise film at the last minute because I'm like, I'm running under time. I don't know how this happened. And I ended it with the, I think, a big surprise for a lot of people. Night of the Living Dead 1990, the one directed by Tom Savini. Which I've never seen. Very good. The remake. Yeah, very, very good. Would recommend checking it out. That for when I was a kid, it was like one star, half a star. Like, how dare they? Absolutely. That's why I never saw it. Yeah, so I would, I mean, Tony Todd stars in it, like in a straight role. It's like really, really good. God, it's so crazy that I never saw that because if if Tom Savini did a remake of Night of the Living Dead now. You'd be like, I'd see it. Yeah, please. But like back in the day, it was like a big theatrical film. Great, like character actors like Tom Tolls shows up. Bill Mosley plays the brother who's like, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Yes. And I think what people were shocked by the movie is that it's not very violent but that supposedly tom savini said that was a conscious choice because we were making that living dead we just don't want to like gore it up so we're trying to do something different and i think a lot of people didn't like the fact that barbara was made into a proactive character in the movie well i mean quite different than yes. the original yeah but that's yeah. good like if yeah. you're gonna do a remake do something different like yeah. why just remake the same movie so i i do think that like it's been reclaimed by people who are watching it now. It's like, oh, this is really good. And all the zombies look amazing because Tom Savini's doing and his team is doing all the makeup. So I think it was a very successful 24-hour horror movie, Mind Melter. A lot of people said, wow, I can't believe I would have never seen this movie if you hadn't shown it. So that's the best compliment I could have. And they loved one of them out of it. And now you have a whole year to come up with more horror movies. Oh, my God. It's so hard to do this. This one I worked the <laughs> hardest on. Of like looking at Letterboxd and being like, ah, this follower I have has already seen this movie. Can't play it. Oh my God. Okay, well, you might have to loosen it a little bit. <laughs> like I'll be like, oh, I don't know, the Hills Have Eyes guys. <laughs> that movie, that's what I'm starting with. Yeah. 
<laughs> because like I look at 35 millimeter like screenings and they can play the normal ones. We're just happy to see them on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. You know what you should say? You should say, do you guys like John Carpenter? Someone in the chat, there was two kind of mild complaints. Someone was like, oh, you play too many Asian movies. And I'm like, number one, Asia is many countries. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how dare you? And number My racism <laughs> button is, is, is shining a lot. And also people will not have seen these movies, That's which right. is a re- reason that I would do them. Some of them I got custom subtitled for the screening to Japanese horror movies. You see, the thing about the Asian horror movies is they hit the sweet spot of obscure and well-made. Yes, exactly. Which American regional ones don't. Yeah, or even like, you know, some countries, like they have movies that I would definitely show to friends, but to show to like 300 people online and have to keep their attention, it's right. like, it's not going to do, like the films have to, that's the problem with programming for this. They have to hit that like particular sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Also, people are like chatting if they want on the side. So it's like, can a film keep your attention? And then you can go back and forth between both of these things. Yeah, so it's very tough to do that. I don't know what I'm going to do next year. But a lot of these often, like, I pick one, two, or three movies, and then I form the rest around that. Mm-hmm. Like, these are my base. How do I do this? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Will I do it next year? Will I not? I don't know. That's the true scary thing. Ooh. Yeah, stay tuned. 